you have your Bibles with you, you can open to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, 26 through 29. We'll come here in just a minute. And then if you can, hold your place in Matthew and maybe stick another finger or a pen or something like that in Isaiah 25. Matthew 26, 26 through 29, and then Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. Once a quarter, uh, we try to make sure that, um, that the younger kids, especially the ones who would ordinarily... Um, leave at a certain point in the service to go down for children's church. Um, we try to see to it that they're able to, to stay in, to sit through communion uh, with the church, to be able to observe the Lord's Supper, in part because we think that um, one of the things that God has done in giving us the ordinance of the Lord's Supper is that he gives it to us, one, to, as a reminder of what it is that he has accomplished for us through the death and resurrection of his son. But then also, he gives it to us as a teaching device or a way to instruct us, to shape our minds and our thinking, and especially so when it comes to those who are either new to the faith or who are on the fringes of the faith. And uh, we think here particularly of young children. Uh, They're inquisitive by nature, and the more different or odd or unique an event is, typically the more questions that they have. And so we counted a privilege then to have our kids in a service where they can uh, watch people participate in the Lord's Supper even if they are not, because we're hoping that this is one of the ways that the Lord will work on their hearts and minds to poke and provide and or uh, poke and prod to provoke them to ask questions. Having said that, if you got your sermon notes for today on the back side of the uh, sermon outline, you have a, uh, a little excerpt that says our communion story, which is essentially taking Deuteronomy 6, 20 through 25 and trying to adapt it for our setting. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, 20 through 25 is a passage in which uh, Moses, the Lord through Moses, is instructing the people what they're to do when they go through all of these special feast days and fasts and Passover meals and unleavened bread and so on and so forth. And the kids ask, what in the world do all these things mean? Why are we doing it? And they're provided a, a ready answer or a story to tell the kids to help them understand why we do the things that we do. And so here's just a feeble attempt then to take something of that storytelling in Deuteronomy and to work it into our experience as the new covenant people of God in Christ. So if Deuteronomy 6, 20 through 25 were written for us today, it might go something like this. When your children ask you in time to come saying, what does the Lord's Supper mean which we are observing today? Then you shall say to them, we were slaves to sin, and the Lord set us free from that curse with a mighty hand when Jesus Christ was crucified and raised again in victory against death, the devil, and all his works. 
God brought us out from the domain of darkness in order to bring us into the kingdom of his son, to give us an inheritance which he has promised to us. So Jesus commanded us to observe the Lord's Supper, to fear him for our good and for our salvation as we are doing today. It is a sign of our righteousness when we keep this command before our Lord and Savior, just as he commanded. Remembering is an important part of the Christian life. Uh, If you look at Matthew chapter 26, one of the things that's interesting about uh, the Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples is, as we've talked about here before at Edgewood, is the fact that it combines the act of remembering something that has been done with the act of anticipating works or events that are still yet to be done. So in Matthew 26, verses 26 through 29, we read this. While they were eating, that is Jesus and his disciples, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and he said, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. And then verse 29. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Uh, as a father with, uh, with young children, one of the things that um, never ceases to amaze me is that they are always hungry. They, they never get to a point where they say, that's enough. And so no matter who, usually it's my wife who's making the meal. She'll provide a meal, put it on the table. We'll sit, we'll eat. And not two seconds after they inhale the last bit of food that was on their plate, the question will invariably come, do we have anything else? Or what are we having for dessert? Or, and you just sit, you kind of cock your head and you think, can't you just enjoy what it is that you already have? But... All that being said, I think part of that goes to uh, human nature and in a way goes to, speaks to a hunger, an appetite that even we as God's people have. Case in point, when we come to the Lord's Supper, when we come to communion, one of the things that we're doing is that we're remembering what it is that Jesus has done for us and we are celebrating what he has provided for us in forgiveness of sins, in being reconciled to a God who is now our Father instead of our judge, of having the Holy Spirit implanted within us so that we can be made new and we can live free from the power of sin. We're we're celebrating all of that as we come and partake of the elements. All of this we have through the broken body of Jesus and through the blood that he offered on our behalf. And yet, If we were honest, we would probably also say that for all that we celebrate today, for all that we have to be thankful for in the here and now, what Christ has already provided for us, we still find ourselves wanting more. Don't we? Scripture talks about the fact that what we, as children of God, have come to experience that we have tasted of the first fruits 
of his goodness and kindness. In other words, what we experience today in Christ, as marvelous as what that is, is not the full enjoyment that is ours and that is coming to us. We still want something more. So notice that here Jesus says in Matthew 26, when he is having this last meal with his disciples, probably a Passover meal, he offers the bread and he offers the wine. And he says, these things represent what I am doing for you in order to make forgiveness possible, in order to pay for your sins. But then he adds to that, and I won't do this again with you until we're doing it in the kingdom of my Father. Meaning Jesus intentionally holds something out to the disciples to say, there's more coming, just not yet. So, Isaiah 25 Tell me if this is not what Jesus has in mind when he talks about drinking this cup, this wine again, but not until his Father's kingdom. Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Do you hear that? That is the reminder, not just simply of what God has done, past tense, through the death and resurrection of Christ, that is a reminder of what is still to be done because of the work of Christ. That coming and taking a piece of bread and taking a little bit of juice or wine, that putting it on the tongue, tasting it, even that is supposed to remind us that we're wanting to taste, we're wanting to eat, we're wanting to feast even more on the goodness and the kindness of God. And God in his word comes alongside of of this observance and he says, you will. You will. If you're tasting of this now, you will certainly feed completely in the future. So before we go to a time of prayer and before we actually observe this ordinance of the Lord's Supper, uh, we want to remind you of a couple things. One, we are glad to have children in here with us, but because this is uh, very much a covenant meal, as it were, we would ask that only those who have come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior would actually participate in this. Parents, if you want to leave, bring your children up with you so that they can walk with you and watch you partake of the elements, that is fantastic. We would encourage you to do so. But even them not participating in the bread and the juice is an opportunity to provoke them to ask why it is that that doesn't happen for them, but it happens for others. And you get to share Christ with them. Why we need Christ before we get anything else. We would also say to anyone who's here as a guest or as a visitor, if you are a child of God through the finished work of Jesus Christ, if he is is your Lord and Savior, you do not have to be a member of this church to participate in communion with us. 
We would welcome you to share in the Lord's Supper with us as a brother or sister in Christ. But we would ask the same thing of you, that if you are here as a guest or visitor, but you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we would ask you not to participate, but rather to use this time just to sit and reflect and to think on some of these things that may in fact be strange to you. And let the strangeness or the oddity of those things even arouse your curiosity and provoke you to ask meaningful questions about what you see happening in front of you today. So I'm going to ask the deacons and the elders if they would come forward and stand at their stations. I'm going to have a word of prayer with us. And then once, I've, uh, once I have prayed, we'll have deacons that move up the rows by sections. Each row will take a turn coming up to take a piece of bread and to take uh, some of the uh, juice that they will, they'll take the bread and dip it into the juice. You'll be able to partake of the elements that way, and then you'll return to your seat. If there is anyone who can't make their way up to the front, if you can just simply raise your hand, we will see you and we will bring it to you so that you can participate as well. So bow with me in prayer. Father, as we come and as we take part in this practice that you, through your Son, have ordained for us, we do this as an act of faith and obedience because you have commanded us to do this. We obey because we believe that Jesus Christ died for our sin, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures, that he lives exalted, seated at your right hand, ruling and reigning and waiting to set up his kingdom in full here on earth. We come not as perfect people, but we come as forgiven and redeemed sinners who need to take advantage of your mercy and your compassion every day that we wake up. Thank you that every morning you have new mercies waiting for us. Thank you that you have more mercy than we have sin coursing through our veins. We ask now that as we participate in this solemn act that you would impress upon our minds the sobriety of what it is that we do, being thankful for the costly gift that has been given to us and that also... You would make us eager to see even more clearly and more fully all that it is that you have in store for us through Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, now we will dismiss our kids, kindergarten through third grade, to Praiseville. They'll meet in the lobby in the back, and leaders will take them downstairs to the children's wing, which is where parents can find their kids after the service. Parents, please find your kids after the service, okay? If you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah again, this time chapter 57. Isaiah 57, starting at verse 14. I'm going to read verses 14 through 21. <clears throat> I'm reading from New American Standard in case it might sound a little different from yours. 
Isaiah 57, 14 through 21. And it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstacle out of the way of my people. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of those whom I have made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry and struck him. I hid my face and was angry, and he went on turning, his, turning away in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and to his mourners, creating the praise of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea. For it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as your word goes forth now, that it will not return empty, but that it would accomplish all that you have intended to do here in our midst this morning. We ask that, uh, that this passage of Scripture would comfort those uh, who need comfort, that it would uh, unsettle those who are too comfortable. Father, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in the name of your Son, Christ. Amen. On Wednesday nights, we've been uh, working our way through the book of Isaiah in a men's Bible study. This was one of the passages that we hit, uh, I think, maybe two weeks ago, and it just kind of grabbed hold of me, and so here we are. I'm going to throw it in front of you and hope that it grabs you as well. Uh, one of the things, just to set the scene, because I don't want to delve too much into, into background details and history... But one of the things that is unique to Isaiah, especially in the latter portion of the book, starting around chapter 40 all the way through the end, is that Isaiah moves back and forth from, on the one hand, talking about um, the sinful, miserable condition that the nation is in. And with that, the certainty of God's judgment that's coming to deal with their sin and their rebellion but then he'll also turn, and sometimes without even preparing you for it, he'll turn on a dime and he'll talk about how, even though it looks bleak now and even though judgment is certainly coming, there after that judgment there's going to be another rescue and restoration in store for the people of God. Now one of the questions that goes through Isaiah when he bounces around like this is that it's easy to recognize and it's easy to see why it is that God's judgment would come on his people. Because we see very clearly when you read Isaiah just how sinful and twisted and rebellious they are. All you need to do, if you're curious and you want to do it on your own time, read the first chapter of Isaiah. And that will give you all you need to see. 
The bigger question, though, is, okay, judgment is what they deserve, and judgment is what's coming for their sin, but why should they expect anything good from God? Why does that come after judgment? And in various ways, Isaiah goes about answering that question. Here is one place where we see that tension touched on. I want you to notice something. What Isaiah is doing in this passage that we just read, Isaiah 50, 57, 14 through 21, the very first verse, verse 14, which is this voice calling out to build up and to clear away for my people, the picture there is of the people who have been exiled to Babylon, and now there's this messenger who comes out who says, it's time for him to come home. So this city that's been destroyed, the capital, Jerusalem, the temple, it's all going to be rebuilt. And even though they've been expelled from the land, God is going to do a second exodus event for them. Just like he once brought them out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land, he's going to bring them out of Babylon and he's going to put them back in the promised land. So the, the backdrop to what you have in this passage is this period of judgment at the hands of the Babylonians and through the Babylonian captivity. So God says, in verses 15 and following, he describes himself. And what I want you to see is I want you to see in the descriptions that God gives of himself and then of the actions that he takes, I want you to be struck by the kindness of God to lowly people. The kindness of God to lowly people. So, Point number one, the kindness of God in coming to the lowly. The kindness of God in coming to the lowly. Verse 15 says, Thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. He is high and holy. Where does a high and holy God live? In verse 15, he says, I dwell where? In a high and holy place. Where else would a high and holy person live? I, high and holy, live in a high and holy place. All this high and exalted and holy language is to get across the idea that the high language, the height, is the idea of being exalted, of being superior. So I, I am high and exalted. I live in a high place. I am so far above you. I am so superior to you, to everything else, that I live way up there. But also, it's not just that he's high and exalted, it's that he's holy. If you were to try to say, well, just how high and exalted is God, you run into immediate difficulties because the minute that you start to try to compare or liken God to something, well, he's as high as, or he's as far removed from us as, you start to run into the holiness of God, which is a way to say, God is so different, he exists in a class of his own, he is inexplicable. It's not just simply that he's moral, right? 
moral, moral, moral is the Lord God Almighty. No, holy, holy, holy. He is different. He, nothing, he, he can't be compared to anything else. So by the time you get to these descriptions, the high and exalted one whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place outside of time and space. I inhabit eternity. The picture that's being conjured up of God is of a supreme God who is inaccessible and unapproachable. You can't get to him. He is that far removed from this universe that he has created, which was effortless. All he does is speak, and worlds come into existence. He exists so far beyond that, much less us, these little specks of dust on this little rock of a planet. He is so different from us he is so far removed, so high, so superior, that it is pointless to try to find God. He lives in a high and holy place because he is high and holy. But that part makes some sense. A high and holy God lives in a high and holy place, but he also lives somewhere else. Where else does he live? I also live, God says of himself, with contrite, lowly people. I, I'll probably bounce back and forth here on this word contrite, just to kind of give you a little bit of an idea. Contrite, uh, contrition, sorrow, right? Regret over your sin. There, there are a couple places, this shows up multiple times in Isaiah, but in Isaiah 53, 5 and 10, this word contrite, that's what it has in New American Standard. I'm not sure what it has in yours. This word contrite is the same word that's used of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 when it says that he was crushed. So when you think about a contrite person, in this instance, you want to think contrite, sorrowful, crushed, beaten down, lowly. This high and exalted Supreme, holy God who cannot be approached and who cannot be found, He lives with crushed, lowly people. If that makes sense to you, you're not reading this correctly. A high and holy God lives with crushed and lowly people. Billionaires do not share rent with welfare recipients. The CEO of a Fortune 500 company does not live under a bridge. You look at the, at the man, you look at the housing, and they're going to match to a certain extent. We know this instinctively. This is not what we should expect. This should not seem normal to us. The high, holy, exalted God does not dwell with crushed, lowly people, except that he does. Of his own free will, 
But see, notice this. It's not just that they're crushed and lowly. You have to also notice why it is that they are crushed and lowly. Does God just have a soft spot for the down and out? Every now and then he likes to slum it. No. Verse 16, he dwells with the crushed and lowly so that he can revive them. He's doing it for them. Why would they need to be revived? Why, why are the crushed and lowly in such a desperate situation? What does it say in verse 16? For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of those whom I have made. The point is simply this. These people are made low by God's judgment on their sin. These are not people who have just suffered accidental misfortune. These are not people who just make a bad decision, things don't go their way. These are people who have been made sorrowful, who have been made contrite, who have been crushed and made low because of their sin. The righteous anger of God has dealt with, has visited them in their sin, and it's under the weight of his heavy hand that they are pressed and pushed low. Why would God live with them? Why would he not just say, you're crushed, you're lowly? Exactly right. You did it to yourself. Instead, God comes to the crushed and lowly and he takes up residence with them. No one else can find God unless you count as crushed and lowly. What this means, practically speaking, well, there are a couple things that we could say. Let me give you just a handful. Number one, what this means is that as God's people, we should prize lowliness. We should prize lowliness. And understand, I don't mean lowliness like, you know, Eeyore type you know, nothing is ever good and woe is me. I'm not, not that kind of lowliness. I'm talking about the kind of lowliness where your eyes have been open to your sin, the consequences that it brings, where you recognize the heavy hand of the Lord when it's upon you. I mean, that kind of lowliness. That kind of lowliness, that kind of crushing and contrition, that should be a treasure to us. Why? Why should lowliness be a treasure to us? This is not the way that we want it to be, by the way. No one wants lowliness. Why should lowliness be a treasure? Why, why should we prize being crushed? Because we get God.
we should prize lowliness because God prizes the lowly. Which also means then, closely connected with this, there is no way that we see God without also seeing our sin. There is no way that we see God without also seeing our sin. No one can claim to know God and not know that they are totally unworthy sinners. No one can. So when Isaiah 6, when Isaiah has this magnificent vision of God seated on his throne, what is his response? Is it, oh my goodness, if only the guys back home could see what I see. He sees God seated on his throne. He hears the angelic beings calling out the holiness of God. And his initial response is, woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Does that ever strike you, that he sees God and simultaneously sees how sinful he is? We should prize lowliness because God prizes the lowly. Listen, even Jesus said, in Mark chapter 2, I have come not to call the righteous, as if there are any. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. So it is unbelievably kind that a high and holy God would dwell with people who have been crushed and made low by their own sin, suffering the just consequences that have come their way. And that God would come and say, the way that I am going to restore you, the way that I'm going to revive you, notice is, I am going to freely just withdraw my anger. Not because his anger has been spent, you haven't paid up in full. I haven't paid up in full. He withdraws his anger as a sheer act of grace and mercy. And we would say he withdraws his anger to pour it out fully on Christ later. But it's even more absurd than that. Number two. It's not just that God shows himself kind by coming to lowly people. God shows himself kind by making lowly people. It is his healing that makes us low. This is not stated explicitly in the text, but it is, I think, pretty clear on the implicit side. Here's what I mean by that. When you look at verse 17, verse 17 says, 
Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry and struck him. I hid my face and was angry, and he went on turning away in the way of his heart. Who, who's the Lord referring to? This is a big question. You have to answer this one correctly. Who is the Lord talking about that he was angry with? That they kept turning after their own way, stubbornly, following the ways of their own hearts. Who's he talking about? He's talking about his people. He's talking about the very people that a couple verses earlier, he has just called lowly and contrite. Here's the big question. How in the world can you call these people lowly and contrite, sorrowful over their sin, and then as you review their history say, when I looked and when I watched them, I didn't find sorrow or contrition or lowliness. I didn't find grieving over sin. I found stiff-necked, rebellious, hard-hearted people who persisted in their way. Those two things don't line up. How do the hard-hearted, wayward, rebellious people in verse 17, how did they become sorrowful and lowly? In verse 15, you get the answer in verse 18. I have seen his ways. What ways? I've seen his stubborn ways. I've seen his rebellious ways. I've seen his sinful ways, his offensive ways. I have seen his ways, but, oh, but, I will heal him. Which means that even the people who are brought to sorrow over their sin are made sorrowful by a kind act of the Lord. Because if the Lord would ever leave any of us to our own devices, we would continue in sin. Our, our bent, our nature, from the time that we draw our first breath, David even says from the time of conception, we have a hunger and a delight in sin bred into us. And anyone who goes his own way continues to go and chase after sin. God says... My anger and judgment comes down on that sin. But if I find anyone who is sorrowful, who has been made low, who humbles himself when he sees the error of his ways and when he feels the weight of my judgment on their sin, I will come and live with him. I will withdraw my anger and I will restore them. But the question has to be asked. If I don't want to be sorrowful, how will I become sorrowful? And I have to say, I desperately need God to heal me. I need God to make me sorrow over my sin. When I see my sin, it is not my insight and discernment that has done that. It is God graciously opening my eyes to see 
then I'm walking in the ways of death. Make a couple, couple points of application here before I go, go to our last point. One, again, what this means in terms of, of practical Christian living is not only should we prize lowliness when we're convicted of our sin, I have to start to see sorrow over sin as the first step in being healed and made right. Everything in this world is preaching to us, telling us that we don't have to feel bad, that we shouldn't feel guilty, that we can set the terms, that we can run on our own agenda, and any sort of pause or uncertainty or guilt that we feel, well, that's just because of other expectations that we've placed on us, and we need to break free from that. And what Scripture is saying is, is that in the revelation of God's will and character and person, it is a good thing for God to allow us to feel the weight and the sorrow of sin. Because if you don't feel the weight and the sorrow of sin, you don't look to be healed. Parents, as one parent to another, be very, very careful. The temptation is so great. Your little kid comes to you, and he's been caught in doing who knows what. Fill in the blank. Probably hasn't confessed because you've got to catch him red-handed, but whatever. Whether he confesses or not. Beware of the temptation of trying to quickly skirt them through a sense of conviction over their young sin. Do not paper over it. Don't brush it aside. We are not serving our children well if we bring them up never knowing things like sin and righteousness and judgment. Parents, when you blow it, when you lose your cool, when you yell at the kids, or when you make a boneheaded decision, own it. Don't run from the conviction and the loneliness. Make yourself low even in the sight of your children. Repent and confess to them. Ask them for forgiveness when you step in it so that God can heal you and revive you and make you whole again. Christians, you have to start asking yourselves, how often in the music that I listen to, in the books that I read, in the thoughts that course through my mind in the course of the day, how often, if ever, do I wrestle with the weight and the burden of sin in light of the character of a holy God? Christians are not people who have come, who, who now have the ability to shrug off sin. Christians, above all, are people who recognize the cost of sin and where to lay it. And ultimately, ultimately, here's the point that we need to end on. It's not just simply that it's his healing that makes us low. He takes rebellious, sinful people and he heals us so that we can grieve rightly over sin. In addition to that, he also creates 
the praise that then comes on our lips. Verse 18 and 19. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and to his mourners, creating the praise of the lips. Listen, people, by the time you get here where you get the impression that the only reason that God dwells with contrite, lowly people is because he makes us contrite and lowly so that he can live with us, so that he can restore us. And then you come on the other side of it and you say, well, even for the people who are contrite and lowly, who have something to sing about, even their praise is what he creates What should be running through our heads is what Paul says. All things are from him and through him and to him. Seeing sin and sorrowing is a gift from him. It is a kind, kind gift. A godly sorrow that leads to repentance is a good, kind gift from a loving father. Don't run from that. Don't shirk it. When you find restoration and when you find healing, when you come finally out of mourning and repenting and confessing over your sin and now he puts a new song on your lips, know that even that you got from him. We're just these children who run around asking our father to give us the goods that we need to give him a present back. Even the praise is not praise that we create for him. He creates praise so that we can praise him. God is doubly, infinitely kind to us. Let's pray. Father, to the, to the degree that we are comfortable in our sin, either by rationalizing or justifying or trying to pin the blame on others, help us to remember that it is your kindness that leads us to repentance so that we would find life. That it's in sorrowing over sin, the sin that we still battle with and wrestle with, that enables us to find joy and singing and laughter when we experience the fullness of your kindness and your forgiveness. Father, I pray for this body of believers here at Edgewood. I ask that for each and every one of us, individually, as families, as a corporate body, that you would give us a desire to see a God-honoring lowliness of spirit who recognizes how small we are and how pitiful we are because of our own waywardness and sin, but that we would revel in and delight in the greatness that has been poured out on us because of being made future heirs of your kingdom through Christ. Father, if it's necessary even today, would you make us sorrowful so that we can rejoice? Cause us to hate sin and to turn from it. Cause us to find you even in the low times of life and to trust that even in those low times that even that is a gift 
that you use to extend your presence to us. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Andy is going to come and lead us with a, a closing song. If you are here and you perhaps don't know what it even means to begin to deal with or see or recognize your sin, I would love to talk with you. After everything is said and done, I'll be at the door as people are heading out. You can wait in here, and I'll come back into the sanctuary. I'll sit and talk with you about whatever you want for as long as you want. Or if you do see, your eyes have been open maybe for the first time, and you don't see how it is that you can be brought out of this despondency now that you've seen your sin, I would love to talk to you and tell you about the joy that the Lord offers to forgiven people. Christians, as you stand and sing, though, be mindful of the fact that he is kind to you, not just in forgiving you, but also in bringing you to deal with your sin so that you can know him more fully and so that you can be made glad.